Dear God, I thank you for each person who is here. We are grateful uh, for just your many, many gifts. Most of all, we are grateful for your son and the gift of salvation, a forgiveness of sins, and just the freedom that you give us, the ability to change and to grow through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we will be Christians that point to you, uh, that when people look at our lives, they see a clear direction, that they see holiness, that they see joy, uh, that they see a commitment and sacrificial love of others. And so I just pray for our time together, challenge us, encourage us, comfort us, help us to be your people, to flourish as you desire for us in our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're an outline person, if you're online, it should be there on the Facebook page. Uh, the bulletin would have the outline. If that's your learning style, I encourage you to look at that and kind of follow along. So the question this morning, as we begin the book of First Thessalonians, written by the Apostle Paul, the question is, what does it mean to be a model Christian? What does excellent faith look like? Uh, when the Apostle Paul wrote this book to the church in Thessalonica, he said about them that they were a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, that's pretty impressive to have the Apostle Paul say you are a model to all the churches. So I want to dig into this a little bit. I do want to give a little bit of context, a little background on the city because we're beginning this, this series um, this particular book is the Apostle Paul's personal expression of care for this church in Thessalonica, this church that he started. Uh, he went there, you can read about it in the book of Acts, and he went and was not there very long. Some say, uh, it says he preached in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. Um, so he may have just been there for the three weeks, or he may have just preached in, and then they kicked him out of the Sabbath, uh, out of the out of the synagogue, and he was there a little bit longer. But uh, he wasn't there very long, and planted this church. Um, it was this very important city. Even at that time, it was probably about two hundred thousand people. It was probably second only to Athens when it came to size, and. The Apostle Paul went there and went to that whole area because he had a vision from God of a man in Macedonia who said, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so the Apostle Paul was obedient. He surrendered his agenda and where he wanted to go, what he wanted to do. And he went to Philippi first, and that went well until it didn't. Uh, that often happened with the Apostle Paul. Uh, he would see results, and then he would usually see riots. That's what happened with him almost everywhere he went. And he was beaten and arrested and then released, and then he headed to Thessalonica. Now, so here's what he says at the beginning of this book to this beloved church, this model church, this church that he holds up to us as one that we should emulate. And so I want to read this to you. Uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and Silas and Timothy are just companions of his, those that he mentored and, and led, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is 
So he kind of takes a Greek greeting and makes it a Christian greeting. And peace, he takes really, in essence, from a Hebrew greeting um, and makes it a, a Christian greeting. And he really, in a sense, brings together, it's not just a greeting, but he brings together both the Jews and the Gentiles that were in that particular church. Um, plus, he, I also think it's a great summary of the gospel message, grace and peace. Because of the grace of God, we do have peace with God. Now, he then goes on to say, um, Greetings to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Now, verse 3, if you're going to star a verse in this particular passage, this is the verse I'm really going to land on. He says this, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became, and I would circle this word, a model a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So he greets this church, and church simply means called out ones. These are people that God has called out from their community to live differently. People who've been called out to follow wholeheartedly Jesus Christ. When you look at um, this particular passage in that verse that I starred there, you see kind of three main attributes in the Christian life. Uh, faith, love, and hope. We see this is a a theme that, that he, Paul, who writes um, much of the New Testament, talks about a lot. We see it at the end of the famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And so this was a regular part of thinking about the Christian ethic, the Christian lifestyle. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And so these three elements are a picture of what it means to be a model Christian. A model Christian, if I had to use the summary when I look at this whole passage, is someone who's empowered by the Spirit. And you see different faces of that. And that verse that I had you star, um, I think that you see these three kind of faces of being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, faith and love and hope. So first you see exhibits a working faith, a working faith. Sometimes in America, we tend to think of faith as just intellectual assent. Like there's these doctrinal statements and you're like, yeah, I think that, I agree with that. Um, biblical faith is much deeper than that, much more than that. It is not just intellectual assent. It's not just checking a box saying yes. It is putting your full trust in something, putting your deep trust, your confidence in God, uh, the person of God, in the work of Jesus Christ and what he says for us. 1 Thessalonians 1.3, notice it says, Remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. This is a working faith. 
A faith that doesn't have fruit, a faith that doesn't have works attached to it, is not saving faith. It is not that we earn our way to heaven. We don't. God gives us this precious gift. But it's, it's like, I think of kind of like the gift of a child. God gives us the gift of a child, um, you know, and, and married couples, we rejoice in that. That's an amazing gift, and we're excited. But that child changes everything, right? There's a lot of work associated with that. Having a child, um, that, that gift now creates this different lifestyle. It changes things. And that's the kind of faith, this working faith, that is part of being a model of Christianity. See, faith is about trust, and it is a response to what God has done from us, done for us. Now, if you look at our, our text further down, 1 Thessalonians 1.9, you see part of the response of faith is this. In verse 9, towards the end of it, it says, they, um, they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the, the living and true God. This is really hard, very complex, very difficult. In ancient culture, as I understand it, everywhere you went, there were, in a city like Thessalonica, there were these gods woven, these pagan gods woven into life. So you wanted to get married. You were to go and offer an appropriate sacrifice. You wanted to start a, bu- a new business deal. You were to incorporate, to reach out and ask for the blessing of a particular one of these pagan gods. And it just was woven through all of life. Now, the Jewish people that were there, because this church was a combination of Jews who accepted the Messiah, Jesus as Messiah, and Gentiles who were coming from this pagan background, the Jews did not have all of that baggage But the Gentiles, who probably are the bulk of this church, they did. And for them, this was huge. This was a working faith to turn from the idols of their culture and to live for Jesus Christ. Now, let's be honest. This is not just an ancient problem. This is an everyday, right now problem. Our culture has idols as well. An idol is anything that you put above God in your life. Anything that you ultimately trust above Him. Anything that you rely on. Anything that you count on that's above God. And so, and the human heart, one theologian says, is an idol factory. And an idol doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be something good. But it's when it heads up into the top position. That's when it becomes an idol. Now, It is really important that we understand this, that a working faith turns us 180 degrees from pursuing all these idols of our culture. Now, author Anne Voskamp, she says this about um, idolatry. She said, at the core of every one of our issues is this attempt to construct our identity on something besides Christ. When we build our identity, even something good like family, our identity on pursuing money, our identity on whatever it might be, then our issues begin to rise up and we are not living in the way God wants us to live. We are not going to flourish as He wants us to flourish. And so this is a huge deal for these pagan Gentiles to turn from these idols. They would have paid a price socially. 
They could have lost jobs. They could have been kicked out of their families. They could have paid even with their lives in some cases. And so this is, this is huge. They had to face the fact that in the Roman world, what was becoming um, true was that the emperors themselves were either being called a son of God or being called a god. And they were being, Christians would be called in in times of persecution, and they would be asked to make an offering to uh, the Roman emperor, and you had to decide, what am I going to do? Am I going to bow to this? Or am I going to turn from this idol and follow the one true Son of God? In our culture, there are idols like sexuality. There are idols like love. It's amazing what people will do. Happiness can be an idol. Success can be an idol. Freedom can be an idol. Family can be an idol. There's lots of things. A particular relationship can be an idol. We've had a long-standing ministry at the halfway house, and one of the things that is heartbreaking, and we see it fairly often, is somebody will do really well in the halfway house. It's like in that time of adversity and difficulty, God strips them down to what is important, and they begin to turn to God, and they begin to change, but it is not uncommon for them when they leave to go right back into a destructive relationship or to go move into the person that um, they used to do drugs with or whatever it might be. And we have to turn from these idols that can cause us real problems. See, faith, a working faith, what makes a working faith work is the object that you put it in. You know, you could have strong faith in thin ice, you'll still fall through, right? Or you can have weak faith in thick ice and you can walk across the the pond. God is that thick ice. He's what we can count on. He's where we can put our trust. And so it's the object of our faith that matters most. And the Apostle Paul always consistently points people to Jesus Christ. And so these Thessalonians had turned radically. They were going one direction in their paganism, and they heard the message of Jesus Christ, and they turned around and went the other way. Then Paul says that they serve And the word serve here that Paul talks about is that he picked the strongest word possible. It's a word for either slave or servant, for the one that's having to do work that can be very unpleasant. And so they serve the one true God. They make a decision to change their direction. And what I appreciate about Saul, who became Paul, is that God gave him an indication of what he was going to be called to, even with the name change. Saul meant one thing. He was renamed by God Paul, and Paul meant um, little or small. And so this very highly educated man, this important man, this man who was on his way up in his circles and among his people, he embraced the path of humility because of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a working faith that Paul exercised, and this is how we are to walk and live out our lives. Faith is trusting God above everything else, and we're to live lives that people can see that faith. So the second idea when it comes to being a model Christian is that we love well. If you look at our passage, 1 Thessalonians 1.1, it says, 
Paul Silas to the church at of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. Jesus, his name means Savior. We are pointed to the example of Jesus who loves sacrificially. He loves well. He came the greatest possible distance and journey for us. He left heaven and left being worshipped to become a baby, the place of complete dependence. He lived life on our terms. He battled against temptation as we do. And he walked through that perfectly and offered that sinless life as an offering on the cross so that we could be forgiven and set free. If you continue to move forward in our text, 1 Thessalonians 1.3, notice the line in the middle, your labor prompted by love. And the love that God calls us to is this agape love, which is this God kind of love towards people. It's not a love that's trying to get something out of people. It's not trying to take advantage. It's an agape love. It's a giving love. It's a sacrificial love. That's what Jesus modeled for us, and that's what we're called to live well, uh, to walk out and to live. Living like Jesus is thinking about when he gathered his closest followers right before he's going to die, and they're arguing about who is the greatest And Jesus gets down on his knees and begins to wash their feet. And he washes the feet of Peter, who's going to deny he even knows him. He washes the feet of Judas, who is going to betray him. He washes the feet of all those men who are going to scatter and run from him, not stand by him. And we see this incredible example of Jesus loving well. How do we love Jesus loves the wounded and the broken. Our kindness, when we walk as Christians, says to the hurting that God has not forgotten you, that God sees you. You see, the love of God for us turns around and calls us and motivates us to take action. We are to labor in that love, as this passage says. One of the classic stories in Scripture is the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. This man who was, would have been viewed as an enemy of the Jews comes along in Jesus' story that he tells to make a point. And then the Samaritan comes and he finds this beaten up Jew who could die. He's been left for dead by some robbers. And this Samaritan dresses his wounds, takes him to an inn. In essence, in our kind of language, leaves his credit card number and says, I'll be back. And he steps in. He sees the need. He sees the hurt. He sees the wounding. And he loves this stranger well. Now, I know that we are drowning in a sea of needs, and we cannot do everything, but each of us can do something. And it is so important that we love people. If we're going to be model Christians, we are called to love people well. I was reading a missionary who once said, a hungry person has no ears. And what he meant by that was it's hard to share the gospel with someone who is just absolutely starving. And so we are called in Scripture to love one another. There's at least 29 times in Scripture where we're told one of these one another's in Scripture. We're told to love one another, to forgive one another, to pray for one another, to bear one another's burdens, to regard one another as being more important than yourself. That's a tough one. Do not speak against one another. Do not judge one another. Show tolerance for one another. Be kind to one another. 
We're told over and over again in the Hebrew Scriptures about 36 different places that we are to love the stranger. I think that's about the person who's not like you, not like me in whatever way that is. One author said this, the supreme religious challenge is to see God's image in one who is not in our image. That person that irritates you on Facebook. That person on the other end of the political spectrum. That person who you find to be difficult. We're to love them as well as we possibly can. Loving people is not our feelings. It's not about our feelings. It's an act of the will. C.S. Lewis points out that often when we act as if we love someone, eventually we begin to see the emotions, the feelings catch up with our actions and with our will. Mother Teresa said when she dealt with difficult people or people that were hard to work with, she, and she dealt with the severely impoverished, those who were dying, those, there, was, there was no payoff for her. When she would love people that were difficult and painful and just an absolute mess, and she said she looked for the face of Jesus disguised in them. That's part of loving people. Look around. Who at your work, who in your neighborhood is unloved or unwanted? Reach out to them. When we talk about issues in our culture, and there are lots and lots of issues that punch our buttons, that get us fired up, but when we talk about issues in our culture, always remember that we are usually talking about people. One of the things about social media is it seems to separate, I I just find over and over again, that it seems to separate for us something we would never say if we're sitting right across the table from somebody we'll say on social media. There's something about the distance there. Always visualize your opponent, your enemy, the person you disagree with as sitting right in front of you. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 in our text, notice it says, For we know, brothers and sisters, as loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. He calls both the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers brothers. Calls them family. That is radical stuff. That is stepping into South Africa in the age of apartheid and talking and and reaching across those racial barriers. And the Apostle Paul does that kind of thing. It has that kind of power. One of the greatest ways we can show love to people is to share the message of Jesus with them. If we truly believe what Jesus says and you walk under it when you come to church here, if you come down the middle aisle, you know that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If we believe that, if we believe He's the only way to heaven, one of the greatest gifts, one of the greatest acts of love we can ever do is to sit down with someone and share the gospel with them, to point them to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says, they, they got this, 1 Thessalonians in our passage 1.8, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, so it rang out from them, it went out, it's like a loud noise, it's like a trumpet blast or a loud thunder. At the end of the Gospels, we are given 
these commissions. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, we're given this commission to share Christ with the nations, with all around us. And overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, people come to Christ when a friend or neighbor or family member shares the gospel with them. Now, does the internet help? Do Christian books help? Do pastors help? Yeah, all these things help. But overwhelmingly, the average person comes to Christ because the person who is just walking that out actually sits down and has a conversation with them about the gospel, about what Jesus has done in your life, how you can find forgiveness of sins. And so I encourage you to do that. Another great way we can love people well is to pray for them. It was kind of heartbreaking at times. We, had a, uh, we did the fair. We had a booth, Journey did. And we gave away free books and Bibles, that sort of thing. But we also had a prayer box. And I would periodically empty the prayer box and read through and pray over those requests. And it's, most of them were for physical healing, those kinds of things. And we would pray over those, and I'd bring them, uh, some of those to the small group that meets every single morning here at 7 a.m. and prays. But it's interesting how some grab you and some stand out. I think of a little kid's handwriting, and I think I know which little kid it was. And he wrote, pray for my mom because of, she was on drugs. And then I think of, it was a man, if I, it's who I thought it was that wrote this, and he said, I am a, I'm an addict. I have lost everything. Please pray for me. And so here we were sitting in a fair, connecting, doing the best we can to love on the stranger, the person we don't know. You know, in our culture of negativity, one of the great ways that we can love people well is to speak life, to be someone who who speaks the positive into their life. Always truthful, but try to find the positive. I read a, a book, it was a business book, years ago. Tom Rath wrote it, and it was, How Full Is Your Bucket? And the image was, he said, I want you to imagine that every person you talk to has a bucket and has a dipper. And when you have a conversation with them, every interaction is either you taking something out of yours and pouring into them, or them taking something out of yours taking from you, every interaction is this, you're either sharing or they're taking from you, that most interactions are not neutral. And I think as Christians, we're in a unique position that in a sense, because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, uh, the living water is the image that Jesus gives us, that our buckets can be full because of our relationship with God. And so we can continually and consistently dip out to others. I'm not saying don't I'm not saying ignore self-care, but I'm saying we can speak life to people. In a culture of negativity, we can be that person that encourages, that comes alongside and comforts and reaches out and pours into others. I think it's so important. In John Gottman's research on marriage, he talks about in a marriage that kind of the magic ratio in his mind is when he studied this, if you're going to have a good marriage is you want to say five positive things to every one negative thing. 
And if you get that ratio off, the marriage starts to deteriorate. And so I want to encourage you with your kids, with your spouse, with your friends, with your neighbors, your coworkers, to shine a light on what is right in their life. Um, I used to try to catch our kids doing good. You know, try to affirm them where you can. And I think it's so important that we love people well. The third idea, how are we empowered by the Spirit? What does that look like? In this passage, 1 Thessalonians 1.3, the last part of this verse says, and your endurance is inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is that we endure with hope. Life is hard. Life is challenging. Life is difficult. Hope simply means confident expectation. And we put that confident expectation into Jesus Christ. In this particular book, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, um, where that kind of focuses a lot, it's not just Jesus in general, but it's His return someday. That He's going to come back someday. And honestly, the older you get, it kind of feels like, is He going to come anytime? Are, are we ready? Because it's getting crazier and crazier. You know, I'm up for it. Are we ready? Famous missionary brother Andrew once said this. He said, following Christ always involves suffering. And the fundamental question when you face adversity, when you face suffering, is to ask yourself, can God be trusted? What helps me is ask yourself a question every now and then. How has God been faithful? How has God blessed you, encouraged you, helped you over the years? Actually write lists down. Maybe if you're a journal person and you journal some of your prayers, go back and read how God has answered some of your prayer requests over the years. How has God blessed you? We can endure with hope because of who our trust is in, because our faith is in Jesus Christ. See, that faith at the beginning allows us to work out loving people well, but it also allows us to endure well. It allows us to go through adversity and torment and difficulty. You know, when you study the persecuted church, see, we are very blessed in that we have not reached that level of persecution like many, many places around the world. When you study the persecuted church, I was reading one author, he said this, he said, for every story of deliverance, there are a thousand stories of endurance. That's the real story of the persecuted church. Every once in a while, God steps in in this dramatic, incredible way and pulls the person out, saves the person from adversity. But often, God leaves us in it so we can model what it's like to face that adversity, that challenge, that difficulty as a follower of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Looking at our text again, 1 Thessalonians 1.3, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We wait expectantly for Him to return. Our hope has this future orientation. We have this confidence that He is coming back someday. God will fulfill His promises. You know, even His name, Jesus Christ, Sometimes if people haven't been around the Bible much, they think it's his last name. That's not his last name. Christ just means anointed one or Messiah. His very name says God keeps his promises. 
this one that we hear about in the book of Genesis, somebody's coming, somebody's coming to deal with our sin. And Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all these prophecies throughout the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus has shown up. We can have confident expectation about the future because we see a God who has kept his promises over and over again. I want to encourage you. I think it's interesting in this passage that it talks about a joy. It talks about joy even in adversity. And that can only come, I think, from the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22 talks about how the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. And there's other faces of it as well. We can have a joy even in difficulty, even in trials. And that can be hard to understand at times. But we are called to that. We are not to be people who are if only in our happiness. But we are people who we are happy. We have joy even though, no matter what we face. Some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, if only I was out of debt, then I'd be happy. If only I had a different wife, then I'd be happy. If only I had a better job, then I'd be happy. If only, and the answers go on and on. The reality is it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's through the joy that He offers us that it's no matter what, we can have a joy in us. And we can wait in confident expectation. And I love Paul here, and you may, it may make you a little nervous. Sometimes it makes me nervous because we have you know, five kids, and every once in a while the weight of having people watch you and watch your life. But I love what Paul says here in our text, 1 Thessalonians 1.6, the first part, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Over in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, he does this in other places too, but he says, join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters, and just as you have um, us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. How do you feel about people watching you? How do you feel about being their model for what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? I want you to understand that they are. It makes sense and it's natural if you grew up in a Christian home that you watch those Christian parents and that's what following Jesus looks like to you. It makes sense that if you're a teenager and you have a youth sponsor and they've been in the faith 20 years that you're going to look at them and go, so that's what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. It's going to make sense that if you're a, a new married person, that you're going to look at somebody who has a 50-year marriage in the faith, well, that's what it looks like to walk that out. The big idea is this. You are a model Christian to somebody. The question is, will you be a model of faith, hope, and love. And only you can answer that. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for those who have modeled the faith well in our lives. Lord, I thank you for my parents and the example that I grew up with and grandparents that committed wholeheartedly to you. Lord, I pray each of us, as we look around at our children or our grandchildren, that we would feel the weight of that to walk in a way that models faith and love 
and hope. Lord, I thank you that this world is not out of control, that it is working towards this incredible climax, this conclusion where your son will return and make all things right. Lord, we long for that day. We look forward to that day. As the early church cried out, Maranatha, Lord, come Lord Jesus anytime. I pray that you will find us serving and representing you well as your ambassadors of love and truth and grace. This is our prayer in the powerful name above all names, Jesus Christ, amen.